Well, there's a quote from country music singer Paul Brandt, and it's painted on the cafeteria wall uh, at my kids' elementary school. And here's the quote. Don't tell me the sky is the limit when there are footprints on the moon. Don't tell me the sky's the limit when there are footprints on the moon. I think this phrase captures a little bit of uh, the belief of our culture. We're told things like this every week. If your life could be as extraordinary as you want it to be, the only limit you have is the limit of how much you believe in yourself, how high your standards are, how, how high the mountain is ahead of you. One life coach put it this way, the only limits that truly exist are those that our own thoughts place upon us. Is that true? If only you could defy gravity. If only you could not throw away your shot. If only you could be as young and scrappy and hungry as Alexander Hamilton. You could defy all your limits. You wouldn't be such a normal person for goodness sakes. There's a by age 35 meme going around, starting with the article that was published. By age 35, you should have saved twice your annual income. <laughs> so like, and then all the 35-year-olds are like, we're turning this into a Twitter meme. <laughs> by age 35, you should have left footprints on the moon, something like that. <laughs> Climb up the mountain. What's stopping you? Your own fears? Your own limitations? Get yourself unstuck. Get moving. Come on, let's go. If you get stuck, it's your fault. If you plateau, it's pretty much on you. You should always be making progress, always be making progress in romance, always be making progress in your school, always be making progress in your career, always be making progress in your artistic endeavors. Health, fitness, faith, there is no backwards. And we reinforce this message in our conversations with each other. I was talk, emailing with someone in our church, and he was telling me about the progress reports that we're always giving each other. We go to a party, and it's like, are you seeing anybody? You know, our family reunions, are you, are you dating anybody? Or how's work going? How's that project going? How's your grad school going? What's the next step? When are you getting your PhD? When are you getting your job? When are you getting your real job? <laughs> any progress on, uh, any progress on, uh? So how inspired has it left us? Has it left you inspired? Or has it left you pressured? I think it's left us anxious. In the words of one cultural critic, he says this, one of the common ailments of our age is a kind of existential anxiety in which we become overrun with the fear that our lives will turn out meaningless. We're overrun with the fear that our lives will turn out meaningless. This is our anxiety. Anxiety, it's a fear on the inside that seeks control on the outside. Fear on the inside that seeks control on the outside. Fear of abandonment on the inside that seeks to control through comparing our achievements with others to see if they are leaving us behind. Or fear of public humiliation on the inside that seeks control through hiding from community on the outside, so we don't have to make any more progress reports, or fear of failure on the inside that seeks to control by working ourselves into exhaustion, working, working, working. We never quite reach 
the summit, capital T, capital S. We just reach a summit where we can see other summits. And so we're exhausted trying to get footprints on the moon. So what do we need now? I don't think it's working for us to try to put footprints on the moon. We don't need more pressure in this anxious state. I think that we need a connection. That's what we need when we're feeling anxious. We need a connection with a non-anxious person who loves us. A non-anxious person who says, come on in, I've got unconditional love for you. I've got a seat at the family table for you. You have a place here. I've got encouragement for you. I've got a hug for you. In some cases, I've got a swift kick in the pants for you. If we had a connection like that, a connection we didn't have to earn, a connection we could just receive, everything we long for starts to lock into place. Vision for our life. That's not heavy vision. Freedom from all of that heavy anxiety. We can take that backpack of anxiety off. Courage to follow God's will, not pressure. In the closing paragraph of Peter's letter, Peter helps us see who this non-anxious connection is going to be. He says in verse 10, the God of all grace. Let's turn there. Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Check it out. Uh, you can look at your bulletins or, or your Bibles. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. I just love that title for God the God of all grace. Man, doesn't that just capture his heart for you? We're just gonna hold that phrase up, the whole sermon, just twist it a little bit as we walk through. What does it mean that the God of all grace is for us and loves us? We're just gonna watch the light shine through that diamond and watch our anxiety get transformed in the process. What's it like to be in the presence of the grace of God? Well, First thing we notice about the grace of God is that there's a humbling aspect to his grace. There's a, his grace is humbling. Let's look at verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. A few years ago, I walked with my kids to watch the demolition of the mighty, historic Western Belmont overpass. You ever driven on the Western Belmont overpass? We had driven on it back and forth hundreds of times. And we watched one Saturday, uh, huddled together in a construction zone sidewalk, grit under our shoes, tarp over our heads. And we watched the wrecking ball kind of reach back as far as it could go before gravity pulled it down and it kissed the mighty overpass. <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> and each time, chunks of concrete come flying away. And we watched this thing that we had used. We watched this, we watched this decades, uh, 
this, this overpass standing for decades fall and dissolve into a pile of concrete. God's humbling grace demolishes structures that have outlived their time. God's humbling grace levels mountains that we are not ourselves meant to climb. There are some mountains that are standing before our consciousness that God's humbling grace needs to reach back and kiss with a mighty force. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What is this mighty hand of God? Well, the mighty hand of God is a phrase used in all of the Bible. And uh, throughout the scriptures, it's used to describe God setting bad situations right. When bad situations need to be set right and no human being can do it, that's when the mighty hand of God sweeps through history and brings redemption that no one saw coming. The mighty hand of God brought Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea. And then the mighty hand of God uh, brought their children, the next generation, into the promised land. And the mighty hand of God, Mary, the mother of Jesus, saying, scattered the proud in their, uh, the proud in their hearts and brought down the corrupt rulers from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It was the mighty hand of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It was the mighty hand of God that triumphed in that resurrection over the powers of hell and sin. It was the mighty hand of God that sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to the church. It was the mighty hand of God that caused the persecuted church in Antioch to grow and no one knew why. And it was the mighty hand of God that struck down Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to Peter and the Holy Spirit about how much money they were bringing for the offering. It was the mighty hand of God that crushed the pride of Saul so that he could see the glory of Christ. Every mountain is being made low. Every valley is being raised up by the mighty hand of God. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The word here for humble yourselves can also be translated be humbled by. It's ambiguous. Is it humbling yourselves or is that you're being humbled by something? In any case, it's used in other parts of scripture and other ancient literature to refer to the leveling off of a mountain. The leveling off of a mountain. And it's a great picture here of what God's mighty hand does in human history and human lives. Sometimes the expectations we have for our life are not from God, right? Sometimes we have some mountain-sized expectations of how our lives should turn out, and God has nothing to do with the emergence of that mountain. These expectations seem so grand. They seem so beautiful. They seem so epic. Once I get that grad degree, or once I perform that great feat of social justice, once I'm married to that person, or once I get that position, once I get that set of money, once I get that business. But God knows, in some cases, that that mountain would crush us. So instead of letting the mountain crush us, he crushes the mountain out of his grace for us. It's a humbling grace, but it's also humbling grace. 
It's because he loves us. So we don't get the position we thought we'd get. The breakup conversation happens, hits us out of nowhere and devastates us. The sales numbers dip unexpectedly. The partnership dissolves. The initiative falls on its face. And sometimes when that happens, it just feels like the wrecking ball is tearing our life apart. It can be crushing, and in God's mercy, it can be comforting too. It can be a great relief. You might know our bishop, Stuart Ruck. Uh, he pastors Church of the Resurrection um, in the area, in, out in Wheaton. But for a time, he lived in Chicago when he was in his 20s. He was one of those spiritual but not religious guys living in West Ukrainian village. And he, he was convinced that social anarchy would bring meaning. He was convinced that life-changing experiences abroad would bring meaning. And he had this mountaintop vision of, if only I go to enough pagan festivals in Germany, if only I backpack through enough Western countries in Europe, if only I have enough sort of phenomenal experiences that no one else has had, I'll have a meaningful life. And uh, he thought that this would advance him. He really did. And at one point, one of his spiritual fathers said to him, hey, I know you think all those experiences of yours will bring you a lot of meaning, and I want to know, I want you to know that all of those experiences don't mean a hill of beans to me. You need to follow Jesus. And it was one of the most transforming conversations of his entire life. He let himself be humbled by God's mighty hand, and he followed Jesus. And it's meant to be a true relief. Let's look at verse 6 again, the second half of it this time. Well, why are we humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand? Why are we letting ourselves be humbled by it? Well, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus cares about you. This is the man who humbled himself more than anyone else. He went all the way down. He humbled himself under God's mighty hand all the way down into the earth. And the Father exalted him at the proper time. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're feeling. And he cares about you. He has compassion for you. He has empathy for you. He knows exactly how heavy the backpack is that you are carrying. He cares about your body. He cares about your reputation, your life, your livelihood, your, your romance or, or loneliness, your grad school plans, your, your kids, your career. And it's good mental health to begin to learn to put yourself in the care that already exists from Jesus. Okay, so with the one hand, God's humbling grace levels off mountains that don't belong. And then with the other, God's humbling grace supplies us with care and friendship. He provides us a sanctuary where we can bring all of our anxieties. And we can feel the relief of seeing the mountains demolished. And we can feel the relief of giving over our anxiety to a Savior who cares about us. This is one of the the ways that we need God's grace, we need the humbling grace of God, the humbling grace of God to level the mountains and give us relief, give us empathy. So let's, let's turn the diamond of God's grace just a touch. 
and, and see that there's another way that the light refracts through it. It's not just God's humbling grace. There's also God's fortifying grace. God's fortifying grace, strengthening us from the inside out. Verse eight says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Jesus is not the only one who knows about the things that bring us anxiety. Satan knows our anxiety as well. And, and Jesus, you know, he cares about our anxieties deeply. Satan would, would use our anxieties to destroy us from the inside out. He wants that to happen. He'd love to get in there. He'd love to get in there and prop up, that, prop up anything that's caused. We're trying to seek control. He's like, yeah, keep going. Keep climbing the mountain. The enemy knows our weaknesses in many cases better than we do. He just does. He probably loves the message we hear in culture. The only limits you have are the ones in your head. You can do anything if you believe in yourself. Think about what he told Eve. Listen, if you break the limits God's put on your life, you'll be like God. Don't you want that? And she, yeah, she did want that. He'd whisper the same promise into our hearts too. Hey, a meaningful life is just over the next ridge. It's just over, your life will get meaningful really soon, but you have to try really hard. You have to earn it, you lazy bum. You have to resist God's limits. Strike back at the mighty hand of God. Don't let it put you down. This is your life. This is your truth. If you're stuck, make something happen for goodness sakes. Here's a common way I see this playing out. Someone comes of age in our city, and they're anxious to make their lives as meaningful as possible. And there's like a million ways you could do that, right? So because there's a million ways to do it, it's like, well, which one do I? I don't want to foreclose on any of the options, so I'll keep as many options open as I can, and I'll always be scanning for all of the options, all the different choose-your-own-adventure situations so that I never actually fully commit because then if I commit, then I may not have a meaningful life because I may have chosen the wrong path. One of the options they keep open is a commitment to Jesus and Jesus's bride, the church. They isolate themselves to keep their options open. This isn't the only reason, but it's one possible reason. So in their case, Devouring means drifting. How does the devil devour them? Just drifting, just drifting. Never really committing, never really being known and loved. To be everywhere and nowhere at once. And this increases anxiety and it makes things like alcohol, entertainment, pornography, and sex seem like genuine connection. But outside of the hand of God, all of those things make the anxiety worse. We need the grace of God that would strengthen us to fight the drift, to fight the devouring, and meet the devil so that when he comes to devour us, he hits up something solid. We are prepared for that 
temptation. We are prepared for that encounter. So Peter calls us to be sober-minded and watchful. Sober-minded and watchful. This is the state of the disciple of Jesus. This is another way of saying clothed and in our right minds, okay? We're thinking clearly. We're feeling think, uh, clearly. We're living clearly. Everything is under alignment with God's call on our life. Our emotions are being discipled. Our thoughts are being discipled. And our pra- the things that we do are all under the hand of God. Sober-minded and watchful. This is a gift of God's strengthening, fortifying grace. Thinking clearly and critically about what is truth and what is a lie. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of peace and a sound mind. It means identifying and processing our anxiety with Jesus and his ambassadors. It means Christian maturity. What else does it mean, the strengthening grace? Well, Peter says in verse 9, look with me in verse 9, resist him. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood and sisterhood throughout the world. The fortifying grace of God is best imbibed in community. Where our arms are interlocked and our lives are intertwined, we need each other. I remember when I was in my early to mid-20s, <laughs> I had more anxiety than, looking back, I, had, I realized I had more anxiety then than I, than I was in touch with, that I was really aware of. And I wondered, what's God's call in my life? I don't know. Should I do that grad degree? I don't know. What, when are we supposed to have kids? I don't know. What, what is God? I don't know. There was so much I didn't know, and I wanted to know. And I was anxious to get God's direction. One of the greatest gifts of that time was just a connection to a couple other peers that didn't know either. <laughs> and we got together, and we just shared, man, what our questions were, what our hopes were. And um, we prayed for one another. And we connected, we bonded, we had fun together. We looked at the scriptures together. We engaged in an honest confession together. We were seeking the same thing together. And the spirit of Jesus was in our midst, fortifying us. We were experiencing the grace of God in community. It's tempting to live for ourselves. It really is. It's tempting to live in the city. It's tempting to live by ourselves. But that brings pressure. That will isolate you. If it's just you or if it's just you and your friends, that will isolate you. We need the body of Christ. We need the body of Christ to lock arms with. There's no other way to prepare. We cannot do this alone. We're not meant to do this alone. God's grace humbles us, but it also fortifies us from the inside out, bringing encouragement, not pressure, bringing encouragement, unconditional love. We're humble, but then we're strengthened on the inside. And then finally, turn the diamond one last time. Anxious hearts need God's restoring grace. Need God's restoring grace. Look with me in verse 10. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, after anxiety has done its worst, after the devil has taken his best shot, after the setbacks, after the losses, after the trials, 
after the mighty hand of God has leveled your mountain off, whatever form the suffering takes, when not all done, what happens? When it's the end of the story, what happens? Well, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the thrilling conclusion of the book of 1 Peter and the story of the gospel. That's what glory means. Glory is the thrilling conclusion of everything God has started now that's incomplete and everything we long to be completed. You know where it ends? It doesn't end with whatever our vision of, man, finishing X, winning Z. It's whatever God is doing that will find its completion on the other side of death. We're on the summit of the mountain. We're finally there, but it's not our mountain anymore. It's the mountain of God. It's the living temple where everything is complete and everything is restored. There's two verbs I want to point out in verse 10. Okay, the, the first verb is the verb restored. You see that there in verse 10? God himself will res- himself restore. This is a beautiful verb because it, it, uh, it's actually used in other parts of uh, ancient literature to describe the mending of a net the mending of a net, where someone takes a a torn net from overuse or overextension and mends it. The fine motor skills there of uh, restoring the integrity of a busted net. God in Christ mends the parts of us that anxiety has torn up or that we ourselves have overextended. This Verb, I think, helps us see God's tender and skilled attention that he gives to each of us individually. But let's look at the last verb there. It's establish. The Lord himself will establish you. This verb has architectural connotations. God is pictured as setting a secure foundation for a house. And you can remember in chapter two where a living temple is being built. We're all like living stones in a living temple with Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. God is not just restoring us individually. He is restoring and establishing and making perfect the church, the people of God for all of her imperfections, for all of her shortcomings, for all of the ways that there's holes in the walls. God takes all of that. He himself establishes us together as the people of God. God's restoring grace mends us individually and establishes us collectively. Everything broken, everything incomplete, everything that's not enough is completed, not because we don't have any limits in our mind, but because God has a thrilling conclusion in his, and he personally makes sure that we are full of glory. This will happen when we see him face to face, And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can taste that grace now. The restoring grace of God is available to us now. In Eastertide, we say together, all our hopes for wholeness and eternal life, what? 
we set on the risen Christ. All our hopes for wholeness and eternal life, we set on the risen Christ. We affirm God's restoring grace. Set your hopes on the risen Christ. Let the hopes for your life be a reminder that you long for more and point it, vector your hopes in the direction of the living God and his grace. Here's a way that we can practice this together. I've taught this spiritual practice to you before, some of you. Uh, it's been a couple years, though, so we'll practice it again. It's designed to help us internalize the grace of God for our anxiety, to internalize it in, really into our bodies <laughs> and into our life. Uh, so maybe think of the situation that you're tempted to control, the unfinished outcome of your life, or of someone in, maybe, maybe someone you care about, the unfinished outcome of their life. Maybe there's a situation that you dread. It's a relationship, a job, an artistic endeavor, a choice you're agonizing about. Now we learn to put that situation into the hands of the Father. So we use Jesus' prayer on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember when he said that on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Everything I hope for and long for and work for, I just put it in your hands. You're gonna have to complete this. You're gonna have to take the baton and run the final lap with this. So we're gonna do that together. We breathe in deeply, praying, Father, into our spirits. Take a deep breath right now, just as deep as you can, slow, nice and slow, praying in your spirits, Father. You can visualize how much your heavenly Father has grace for you. And then slowly exhaling, into your hands I commit, and then you give him that situation. What's the situation? Father, into your hands I commit this relationship. My son, my daughter. The grad school acceptance letter. What's gonna happen this summer? Where I'm gonna live? Father, you have so much grace for us. Into your hands I commit the outcome of my life. You just do that over and over again. And this week when you feel the pressure, that can actually then become a reminder to begin to inhale the grace of God. It can be like, oh yeah, the grace of God is here for me. That connection, that living connection, that non-anxious presence, that, that welcome, that hug, that kick in the pants, it's right here for me. And we can learn together as God's people to live in the presence of that grace, that fortifying, strengthening, humbling, establishing grace. To our great relief, all of this begins and ends with Christ. Isn't that a relief? That your life doesn't begin with you or end with you, that it all begins and ends with Christ. It's all for him, isn't it? And in him, we have all the meaning our life needs. Let's take one final glance at the book of 1 Peter in verse 11. 1 Peter 5, 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. My friends, there's the mountain. And there's the meaning.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.